All right, let's get started. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for just what you have done in making this conference possible. Thank you for convening us together. You have called us out from other places and other things we could have been doing to come here to have time really listening to you, not to me, not to other men, but to, to your voice. And that's what our hearts have yearned for, is for you, God, to speak to us and align us with your heart and mind, with your love for the lost, your love for uh, right living and uh, right thinking, right practicing of, of our walk with you. And so, God, we just ask that, that you'd be honored, you'd be blessed, and you'd use us uh, through what we learn and what we hear today, and uh, that we would walk in the fear of the Lord, and, uh, and that we would honor you even in hard decisions in life, and when things don't go the way that we want them to. And so we just ask your blessing on this time now, in Christ's name, amen. All right, perspectives for marriage, for a skittish, unmarried generation. And that, that comes from the fact that it seems like young people are not wanting to marry as much as they used to, as quick as they used to. If you heard the statement, there are a lot of leaks, what would you think? What comes to mind? There are a lot of leaks. If you're in the food industry, you might think there are a lot of leaks, L-E-E-K-S, right? If you were in the plumbing industry, in business, you would think there are a lot of leaks, L-E-A-K-S, right? Or maybe if you're in the government or in intelligence, you'd think there's a lot of leaks, like somebody is passing information somewhere else. So... In all these examples, it depends on your perspective, right? It depends where you predominantly spend your time trafficking in your mind and your associations. And so, you know, if you heard it, you weren't sure which way it was spelled, too, E-E-K-S or E-A-K-S. But perspective is is important. And so even when we hear the word marriage, people have different perspectives that they're coming from when it comes to marriage. And so these perspectives can differ vastly depending on your worldview or your lifestyle choices. And we, we see that a lot. And for the sake of this seminar, I really want to limit the talk to three perspectives. One is the American cultural perspective. The second is millennial generation perspective. And the third is a biblical perspective. And so that's what we're going to cover. So the American cultural perspective is it's funny you'll listen to Seth Rogen or you know you'll listen to late night Jimmy Kimmel or other people you know and people trash marriage you know and it's a ball and chain it's incredible how much bad publicity marriage gets in the secular world it's it's kind of funny we my wife and I were at a restaurant in Raleigh celebrating our anniversary and it's funny that Three other couples were celebrating their anniversary, and we came in after them, and uh, the lady asked us, well, what, what year is this? And it was like the 40, our 40th anniversary. And one couple, at hearing it, said, that ought to be illegal. <laughs> and they were dead serious. And like when we find out one was celebrating their first, another one like their fifth, and the other seventh, you know, it was like they thought something wrong with that, that you shouldn't stay married that long. 
there's also a prevailing attitude in our culture that marriage needs to be open and flexible and that, that it's, it's too rigid and it, because of its association with the Judeo-Christian uh, religion that somehow it's just not right. It also uh, is a prevalent view in our culture that marriage is a union between two people who just desire to commit to each other. It, it's just their choice. There's, it, it, and it really, it lasts only as long as their, their desire continues. There's also the prevailing view that marriage is antiquated and has to be superseded by consensual relationships. In October... Uh, October 10th, 2018, this publication, Brown Political Review, Ava Rosenbaum wrote a piece titled, The Culture of Marriage Has Outpaced the Institution. And she said, the institution itself, marriage, could change. One option is a contract system whereby couples could sign a contract of partnership to last five to ten years, which they could agree to renew after that time, provided the willingness of each spouse. A contract with an expiration date has advantages over a traditional divorce. There would be less time, cost, and drama if the couple decided to separate. The low life expectancy in the 1600s meant that until death do us part was only about 30 years. Now marriage could last a lot long, you know, twice that long. Different life partners for different stages of life could help people in their search for personal growth and self-actualization. Thus, as people change, partners could change without going through the drawn-out divorce process. That's the logic of the world. And one of the key words in there I didn't highlight is that word self-actualization. That is a huge term now in, in the world. And it, it, it basically is saying you need to achieve your highest good. It's kind of like um, in the real estate industry. I'm, this is a secret. No, it's not. I'm a realtor, and I've been since 2002. And so I do real estate. And when it comes to properties, we have a term, and that's the highest and best use of the property. And that's a term. And so this is kind of the equivalent. Self-actualization is the highest and best achievement a person can acquire. And so they're trying to throw off all restraints. And marriage is a restraint because, you know, you might do better with someone else. Well, isn't that a great thought coming from Satan? You know, isn't that what sows a lot of thoughts in divorce and problems in marriage? Is you know, oh, I might have, I made made a mistake. I could do better with this person or that person. Incredible. Can you see how, under a perspective, uh, a perspective like this, you know, that marriage really is a social construct that can change according to the whims of society and and people's needs. So, question, how has the shift in American cultural perspective on marriage affected the church in America? It's an open question. See a lot of divorce. In the church. Yeah. People living together that aren't married. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it has come in. It's, you know, as we talked about in our other session, some of those that were with me in the last session, uh, you can't avoid it. It's, it's encroaching in the church. Sexual 
Yeah, so if I could put a label on it, I would say that what that's indicative of is that self-fulfillment is now outside of marriage. That that grat- self-gratification and, and fulfillment is now achieved by other means, and you cited some of them. Another question, how has the shift in American culture per- cultural perspective affected the nuclear family unit? The, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was the much lower view of marriage, which means that it's only logical that it's something that, say, a homosexual couple or a group of more than two people could enter into just as well as a heterosexual couple. Like, it'd be equal. Yeah. And that outcomes would be equal. That they believe it, right? Well, at least the value of it would be equal. Yeah. Yeah. The millennial generation perspective is marriage isn't necessary. You don't have to have it. It's it's not a an obligatory thing. Instead, there are options to it, like just live together without commitment. You know, we're just going to agree to live together, um, and it's not platonic either. <laughs> Try on and try out another person before getting serious with them. In other words, we, we need to try on the pair of shoes kind of idea. You know, we need to know. Just be friends, but with benefits. If you do want to marry, wait until the mid-30s because you need to have a life first. So it's like you, you lose your life if you get married. You, you, you're ball and chain. In an article from Martha Stewart publication dated June 5, 2019, entitled Four Reasons Why People Are Getting Married Later in Life, Jen, and this is, I, I, you can't make up these things. Look at that name, Sin Rich. <laughs> thought that was really ironic, Sin Rich, Rich and Sin, okay. Jen Sinrich states the following reasons. Women are more independent and career-driven than before, than ever before, which is true. And so this is this is a secular observation now of why those that are getting married, which is a much reduced number, are getting married later. It's hard for us to truly understand the limitations that our grandparents and even some of our parents face growing up that may or may not have prevented them from realizing their true individual potential. There's the self-realization thing again, that it's it really all about you and me achieving our highest potential goes on to say, nowadays, more women than ever are following their passions and even becoming the breadwinners of the household, explains Marissa Nelson, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Many of the career ambitions and positions require extensive travel and long work hours, so I've seen women give themselves permission to focus on building themselves into their current profession and postponing marriage and raising a family for later in life, she adds. So that's a reality. This is what's happening, and we see that as as our culture esteems the uh, equality or the preference of women in in positions. Uh, if you followed the news today, uh, Vice President Harris just spoke to the U.S. Marines, and she made a statement. She said, "Don't you think a Marine that as Marines that." She would want to carry a a a light roll up solar panel rather than twenty pounds of battery. And she was making a point about 
e ecology and being eco-friendly and stuff. And it just fell on deaf ears. And it's like, you know, she wasn't trying to relate to the fact that, you know, 90-some percent of the, of the audience were males. She was driving home an agenda, an ideology. And that's where we're at. It doesn't matter. You know, you now make your point and you drive your ideology and your agenda. Titles matter less and less. And so what she's saying is the title of husband, wife, you know, married person matters less. And she puts it this way. To some, marriage is the ultimate goal, but increasingly we're seeing many women and men acknowledging and accepting the fact that they are comfortable not entering the traditional structure of marriage, says Nelson. Many of my clients are perfectly fine living with their partner and sharing a life together, whether that means buying a home together, starting a business, or moving with the significant other somewhere else for a career opportunity. So in other words, we now accommodate whatever is necessary to, to enjoy our lifestyle of freedom from marriage. That we will, we can accomplish the same goals as married people and do the same kind of thing, make the same kind of life decisions, and yet enjoy a life of sin. So that's what it's tantamount to. Couples are choosing to live together pre-marriage. More and more couples are moving to in together before they get married, often even before they become engaged. This occurrence was few and far between just decades ago. ago. Amazing admission from a secular person. Susan Edelman, MD, a psychiatrist. When you marry after living together, research shows a greater tendency to have a negative, negative approaches to solving problems and being supportive. Interesting. Says Dr. Edelman, the researchers suggest that cohabiting partners likely view their arrangement as temporary and aren't as likely to feel committed to learn the kind of conflict resolution skills that lead to healthy long-term relationships and marriages. So basically saying, you know, God got it right, didn't he? <laughs> There's wisdom in doing it the right way. And, and this is only one of the problems. There's, there's a multiplicity of problems. Divorce rates are startling. The generation that is now putting off marriage is also the generation that's seen more parents divorcing than generations past. People are more cautious to commit due to seeing so much divorce, says Rachel Needle, a psychologist, a doctor of psychology, a licensed clinical psychologist. As a result, they take longer time to commit to the relationship, especially for the long term. So, given that secular fact, those facts, you know, you can see how some of that's bled over into the church. And, and I, and we see even believers, young people that are skittish about marriage because of the fear of divorce and say, I don't want to get it wrong. And they, they go supra cautious. <clears throat> how have you seen these reasons for delaying marry, marrying? Have you seen them? Yeah. I, so yeah, within the church and, and outside the church, you know, I have people literally tell me we should wait until you're married to get married. And wow. I'm not a woman. Like, I, I'm not in that demographic. Yeah, yeah. Tell to go out in different careers. They just said you should wait and get your life figured out. And that was both outside and inside the church. Wow. But then uh, another piece of encouragement was I came to Bethel's and, and uh, Randy Amos was here. We had breakfast with my girlfriend at the time uh -huh. and myself. 
had breakfast with him and his wife when we were got to talking about marriage. And he said, well, we got married right as soon as we were growing high school. And that was just what, how we did things back then. Uh-huh. Like, how old are you guys? And, and I was like 23, 24 at the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's like, why are you waiting so long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me just put this out there before you answer. What age do you think believers should be getting married at? What would what would you think is the optimum? See, I think it's different for couples, like each couple, from person to person. I, I couldn't put a number on it personally. See, back in my generation, and and I I would have been curious to ask Randy, um, what influenced that decision right after high school. For my generation, believers, it was right after college. You were prepared for life. You got your first job. So you had the income. You had stability. And, you know, you got married. And so, like, and we were married at 22. And most all my generation, we married at 22. Finished college. That summer after it, you got married. So that, and so that was kind of normal. Now it's, it's moving up. But it's become confused because there's no general thought as to what is the precipitator of that decision like it was for us like you finish college that precipitates now moving on to the next milestone in your life yeah. what we uh, let's take his question and we'll come back to yours when did you finish college was it after bachelor's or master's <laughs> well see college was four years in our day yeah but now yeah master's phd yeah like you look at when you relay marriage what the sensual world you're in, you know, you just add another crap. Uh, yeah. Guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's definitely something that uh, I've seen uh, most. I have friends who got married when they were, uh, he was 18, she was 16 still in high school. Uh, it wasn't because of like, any pregnancy or anything. They decided to get married in high school. Um, I've seen friends of mine get married at that age because she got pregnant and stuff. Um, so did the first one work? They're still married today. They're uh, 20... Uh, they're about my age, actually. All right. And were they in a good church or assembly where they got good counseling? Uh Ish, they, I do believe that they're believers. They're not a part of, uh, they're not a part of assemblies or anything. I do believe that they go to like a, a small little Nazarene church. Yeah. And, and so I would say, you know, those are the kind of exceptions and they do work, you know, but again, if it's with, with wisdom and godly counsel and, and made the right decision. You know, we, we allowed our son to marry before he finished college and we had, we'd always had a very strong principle that we wanted our kids to finish college because anything can happen once you marry before you finish college that can interrupt your, your college. You know, if your wife gets pregnant, whatever. And so that was kind of a principle. But we saw that he was mature enough. His wife to be had already graduated. She was a year older than him. She had already graduated. So it wasn't going to be a problem with her. And we knew he was going to go on and get his. And so we, we saw it was right and counseled him to go ahead. Um, the reasons are really understandable. Like the high divorce rate. Yeah. The sheer amount of pain you saw 
You're just like, well, I want to sign up for that thing too. Yeah. Yeah, and part of the reason for this seminar is because you're right. There's justification from the flesh to say, boy, that, that's alarming and I'm going to be cautious. But are we holding to the biblical perspective, which we're going to look at in the future, of, that says, don't, don't take those into consideration. Take God's word into consideration. See, that's, that's where we're going with this. Um, what other excuses for delaying marriage have you seen uh, besides what we just looked at? Any others? I've definitely seen like that uh, one of we've got to try it, you know, make sure they are compatible and stuff with you. And it takes years to figure that out. Yeah. Well, I, I think what, what Ron mentioned, you know, that there is that one. Well, my education is more important than anything at this point in my life. And so if I need to get my PhD and add six more years. I I thought of while we were talking about it, the um the recession kind of just happened as a lot of not necessarily my age group yeah. but those slightly before me, they were millennials. Uh, and hearing their stories, they just got out of college and were hoping to get to land that job yeah. to be able to provide for a family. And then it wasn't there. Or so many of us, you know, the, the college degree inflation rate, you know, is such that you feel like you need to get a master's to get that job that provides for a family. But, you know, that seemed to be a factor as well for some people. Yeah, and that brings up another point that segues into it, and that is um, you're really talking about the financial situation of, of being in a point where you can afford it. And the one thing that I've also heard is I've got college debt. And so I can't, I can't get in. I can't even entertain it because I, I'm swamped already. Yeah. You know, and so that's been, that's another reason that I didn't put in there, but it, it is out there and, and I've heard that. Yeah. Another thing that I've seen, like, uh, since in the church is these, uh, things of men asking out the gals. And gals, like, there's been excuses of, well, the gals, we try and go and ask them out, and they don't, they say no. Um, but then I've also heard from the gals that these guys aren't asking us out. Which is very interesting because that really comes from what I call the confusion of of responsibility and leadership in our society. Is it the woman's responsibility? Is it the man's responsibility? You know, our society is saying, you know, you're equals. So you, you, you both take initiative. But for us as believers, the man is supposed to maintain the leadership role and take responsibility. And so there is that bleed over, too, from our culture. Uh, let's move on. So I asked, in the last nine months, I've been asking young people, kind of taking survey, trying to ask and, and get feedback on these things. Like, you know, what where's some of the difficulties for you as to, you know, what what's influencing young people putting off marriage and what's making it difficult. These are some of the answers I got that are different from the research that we just looked at. Phones. What? Phones. Yeah. We text rather than talk. So notice we've made relationships impersonal rather than having direct personal relationships. Secondly, we share photos rather than in-person experiences. We're not doing things together. 
Social media has enabled us to, to kind of publicize our life, but not experience life together with people and doing things together. Thirdly, we express our emotion with emojis rather than body language because they're not around each other to do it. And so we're really depersonalizing the interpersonal experience. And that handicaps relationships. It's better that people do things together. That's where young people have, you know, go on hikes or do, you know, go bowling together where you're interacting and you see people's reactions to, oh, they got a gutter ball or, you know, I mean, you're, you're living experience is more valuable at communicating something about a person than being on their Twitter account or Facebook. See? And that's what's happening. The next area, social media. Social media has become an addiction just like popping hard drug pills. So they say, I'm hooked and can't get off it. That it's like a drug. It's a stimulant. And they just, they're addicted to social media and to following people and following things. Makes me feel others are living better than me. So there is this kind of demeaning aspect where it's like they're having a better life than mine. And this sense of wanting to having to compete and I gotta post more and you know, I gotta get more followers and more likes. Another one, it makes me want to promote myself. Which is a very selfish idea, and opposite to what scripture says, to humble ourselves. So it's it's trumpeting yourself, it's self promotion. It's like saying, I'm amazing. You know, look at me. I'm, I'm just so amazing. And that's what social media is doing. And again, here's this thing, self-actualization. This is the definition of self-actualization that comes from, believe it or not, 1962 from Abram Maslow, Maslow hierarchy of need. So it's also referred to as self-realization or self-cultivation and it can be described as the complete realization of one's potential as manifest in peak experiences which involve the full development of one's abilities and appreciation for life. And the world is pumping out people now. You must self-actualize. You've got to achieve your highest good. And whatever it costs, that's what you need. And so here's that hierarchy of needs that we've so under, seen so often, Maslow's hierarchy of need. And you see that self-actualization, achieving your full potential, that's at the top. And, and that is a lot of what's behind social media too, is you've got more potential. They can like you more if you do more posts and more stuff and more variety of stuff and think outside the box and, and on and on it goes, and you become consumed with it, and you really don't have a life to share with someone else or to have time interacting with people. You're so consumed with it. The best thing you could do is just shut it off and say, I want a real life. Let me go do some gardening, invite somebody to come garden with me. Let's go pick strawberries, Let, you know, whatever. Yes? How many career people, when they retire, say, I wish I would have spent more time in the office? And it's the same kind of thing. That, and you could say that about a lot of areas of life, that you did not make people priority. And, that, and myself, and I'll say that for myself, that there's times where I feel I've been selfish and I should have brought a younger brother along and mentored him and have it a Timothy and say, hey, look, 
watch this. Let's do this together so you can learn from this. And I'm willing to share my time and experience with someone else. You know, that we as believers ought to be the experts in relations and time with people, spending time with people. That ought to be our expertise. And yet, you know, we, we fail miserably in it. And, and I confess I do too. What is the common thread running through the millennial perspective? Perfect. Yes. Yep. Yep. Me. It's all about me. Yep. <laughs> How can this negatively influence preparation for marriage? Yeah, fulfill my needs, fulfill my needs, but you know, I don't care about yours. Let's look at the biblical perspective. First off, God's perspective on marriage has not and will not change with time and societal changes. It's fixed. Praise the Lord. Marriage, like a perfect recipe, has a prescribed content and method, and when followed to the letter, produces a rich, sumptuous burst of delight with a consistent outcome. A consistent outcome. Listen to that again. Marriage, like a perfect recipe, has a prescribed content and method, which when followed to the letter, produces a rich, sumptuous burst of delight with a consistent outcome. It's funny, that that was a bone of contention that we had early on in our marriage is my wife grew up in a family that they were not gourmet cooks. I grew up in Italy and we loved Italian foods and gourmet food. And so it was not unusual for her if, if a, an ingredient was missing to just substitute something. And so it didn't turn out the same. And it was a bone of contention like, honey, this isn't right. It doesn't taste right. I made it according to the recipe. Yeah, except for one thing you left out or changed. And it's like, you didn't follow the recipe to the, to the end, to the final degree. And, and, you know, if you want the same outcome, it's got to be the same ingredients. And so that was funny. And so we worked that through. Second, marriage is honorable and God ordained no matter what the world says. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all. In honor. It is an honorable estate. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So there's no room for budging on that. Immorality before, immorality during marriage. It's fixed. It's honorable. Second marriage, uh, whoops. Uh, this is where Genesis 2, 18 and 21 and 24 come in. The Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to, for, to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which the Lord took had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's God's honorable prescription for marriage. It's funny, the Jews say that when you, when <clears throat> individuals are looking for each other, the man is looking for his missing rib, and the woman is looking for the place where the rib fits. Uh, <clears throat> The origin of marriage starts with the six days of creation, doesn't it? Because God performs the very first wedding. And he's the one who ordains marriage. 
The defining elements leave, that is, become a distinct family. Bye-bye, mom and dad. <laughs> you leave and you cleave. It's never meant for the, the newlyweds and the kids to live right next door to mom and dad and to have that influence on them. They're a separate unit. Secondly, cleave. That is, commitment through formal marriage covenant. And that's what's symbolized by the ring, is that you covenant, you cleave to each other through a covenant that is a lifelong covenant. Uh, and we now have covenant breakers. Divorce is just covenant breakers. They get, make that commitment till death do us part, and then they break the covenant. You know, in the same way that I think that Scripture prescribed that the young men in Israel would not do military service for the first year. I don't think that a married couple should live with any of the parents for the first year. Anywhere close. They need to get to know each other independent of the parents for the first year at least, if not the rest of life. And relate to them as a separate family unit. Because parents, and this is, this is something to keep in mind when you, when God blesses you to be a parent, you have no right to treat them like a child from that point on. They're not yours to control after they become adults and they're out separate. Let them be. Let God teach them. Pray for them. Give them counsel. But if they ask you to share experiences. But the leave and cleave is so important, that distinction, and, and there are so many problems with marriages because of in-laws in-laws cause the problem and 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 because the couple don't leave and cleave and make their spouse the most important person in their life now they still hold on to mom and dad the last one was they become one intimacy unity and fidelity one of the hardest ones that i ever counseled was a young man who didn't have any sexual fulfillment in his marriage he said, my wife married me to have children and we only had sex so we could have children and then she neglected me ever since. That is just atrocious. I mean, she was sinning against God and against her husband and denying his needs. Intimacy, unity, fidelity. But see, those are the kind of things too that need to be sorted out and, and good counseling, premarital counseling can help identify those kind of things and bring them out and they, they did not have that. And so that's a warning, too, that you need need a third party, a godly elder, someone who does good premarital counseling to spend time going through things with the prospective couple. <clears throat> Purpose of marriage. Well, certainly to meet the fundamental need for love, companionships, and community. You know, that comes from Genesis 2.18. It is not good for man to be alone. There is a need, a fundamental need that God has has forged into our being that is met by that. And that's why we believe in the complementarian view that it was by God's design that God made us different but complementary. And that we each lack something that only the beauty of it is when the two complement each other. You know, and there's been books, you know, written that kind of, Secular books, you know, man is from, uh, woman is from Venus, man is from Mars. You know, trying to explain that the differences and so forth. Uh, 
and then there's books like uh, Egerich, Dr. Egerich, talking about love and respect and how a woman emphasizes love and the man emphasizes respect, or the blue and the pink, and there's a lot of different explanations, but God made it complementary that we need each other. And some of the stresses in marriage come because each side is trying to make the other look like their side. Why can't you think like a man? Woman, why can't you think like a woman? Why can't you emote and relate like... And we're always judging each other and stresses come in marriage when you're forcing your side of the understanding of things rather than saying, it's complementary. I understand God's wired you differently and me differently and this is to be put together for something good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Also, to give an example of spiritual relationship and union that each believer will have with Christ, the marriage of Christ and the church, Ephesians 5, 31, 32. So, God wants godly marriages to be that picture of the union with Christ and to be a, a beautiful example and a, a precursor of what's to come, of the beautiful union of the church with Christ, and and the 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 body with Christ. You know, I, I was thinking, uh, just kind of a side note here. Um, one of the songs, those that were in my other seminar, often in songs, some of these songs that are sung, these CCM Christian contemporary music, they'll put sons and daughters of God or daughters and sons. And nowhere in Scripture does it say daughters of God. Daughters of God. God makes every one of us sons of God, but not daughters of God. And so to accommodate the world's view about elevating females, we now have to say daughters of God in Scripture. But you see, that's heresy. Because God wants us to have the right and entitlement of a son of God with all the inheritance rights of a son of of God. And he says that. And so what's happening is it would be the same thing as if us men said, well, we're going to be the, we're going to be the husband of Christ. Because I can't relate to being a bride of Christ. That's a female and I'm a male. And so we're going to be husbands of Christ. That's the kind of heresy that if you, the same kind of logic saying we're daughters of God. In the same way, it's a, you're, you're being stretched out of your comfort zone and, and your understanding because you're a male. You don't understand what it means to be a bride as a woman would understand to be a bride. The same way to be a son of God, see. But this is the way we always play with things because we want to accommodate the world rather than stay faithful to God's word and say, yeah, it's hard to understand, but we can understand it. And God you know, puts that picture out there for us and yeah, we go with it. And so, yeah, so marriage, godly marriages be a picture to the world of what God intends as he looks to the beauty of his bride and is going to marry her and how he treats her and how we treat each other in Christian marriages. And I mean, some of the most beautiful companionship is people that have grown old together, married young and old. I mean, it's so sweet. It is so cool to see, isn't it? The preeminence of marriage, the cornerstone relationship that takes precedence over all other human relationships. God sets marriage as the preeminent relationship more than anything else, more than father to son, mother to daughter, uh, siblings, you know, anything, any other relationship. It is the premier relationship 
that God wants. It's the only relationship sanctioned for propagation of the human race. That is where God puts that sanctity. This is, this is how I want people to be propagated. Marriage is also a partnership. God provided Adam with a helper, a comparable to him. The word in Hebrew, Ezer Kenegdo, means an equal partner. So it's a partnership, one of mutuality, companionship, and interdependence. doesn't mean that we don't have different roles and different authorities that are given to us for certain areas. But spiritually, we're equals. And the biblical ideal for marriage is believer to believer, so that we're not unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for that partnership has... For what partnership has relationship with lawlessness, righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So the premier marriage is marriage between believers. That's what God desires. Marriage is also a ministry to bear witness to the relational nature and oneness of the Godhead in their responsiveness to each other in their capacity for love, intimacy, unity, creativity, and procreativity, and in their co-regency as stewards over all that he, that God has made. So the couple is to display God's attitude toward everything because they have a responsibility, a regency, that is stewardship. And that's what God displays in us to bring order and testimony to their world by careful nurturing, teaching, and care of their family. I can't tell you how often when we were raising our kids that we would get complimented in public. Oh, your kids are so well-disciplined. You know, they saw bratty kids all the time, but when they encounter a a believing family where kids are well-disciplined and taught, it's shocking to people, to secular people. You know, we're, we're to be an example the way we treat our wives in public, that people will notice that there's a vast difference. And so it is a ministry. You're ministering and witnessing to people. Marriage also brings a heritage. Children are a heritage from the Lord that can bring glory and blessing to God for many generations. And our prayer is that we have children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that go on for the Lord and are faithful, and we pray for them. <clears throat> Children are like arrows. We've heard that before. Weapons which can be pointed toward the enemy to show unrighteousness, what righteousness is all about. Amen. Yes. And for the accomplishment of God's kingdom and goals in this earth. And so that when we put off marriage, when we neglect marriage, we're actually going counter to God's desire for the world, for his purposes through history. Psalm 127, 3 through 5, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Notice I highlighted one's youth, which goes back to what we we're saying. When is the optimum time? When you're younger. Because there's a lot of wisdom in having vitality to handle kids. You don't want to be 40 when you start having kids. Uh, it just doesn't work well. Whereas when you're 20s, when you got all that energy, you can handle those rambunctious little guys 
and gals running around. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Isn't that amazing that your your family and your children and the number of them will help you talking to enemies in the public square, in the place of of interchange between people. We're not used to big families, are we? But what a blessing. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full. Give some examples of good or bad Christian marriages. Samson? <laughs> yeah, is a Christian marriage? What do you think is, are some of the root causes for different outcomes of Christian marriages? on the foundation that's built um, and uh, each individual means uh, that comes together um, what they're what are they focusing on? Are they focused on Christ and are they focused on growing in the love of Christ together uh, or are they focused on Point well made. If your criteria for your spouse is that they love the same things you love, well, I hope they love motorcycles. Hope they like, you know, going hiking rather than I hope they passionately love the Lord Jesus Christ and put him first in their life. You know, it depends what your marriage is built on. What are you, what is the common ground that you stand on in your marriage? We think of outcomes as like big long term things, but I think one root cause for them would be like the, the daily habits to, or, or the regular habits. Do we take time to plan time together? Do we take time to pray together? Do we prioritize eating together? What, what, what kind of habits? Do we talk about Scripture together every day? And that, that's a great point. And a lot of, and even Christian families, and, and I, I sad to say in some of my relatives it's this way, they don't sit down together. They, they eat at all different hours. It's like every day the, the time of eating changes and they're not eating together. They're not really a family. And that's one thing I loved about my wife is that she is consistent and we all are together from breakfast, lunch, and supper. When We had our family and our kids very consistent. We had a time. They knew what time we'd be eating. And she was bringing it and was was that way because of her medical background and just the cycles of the body and how it is more healthy to have consistent meals, consistent sleep, consistent exercise. It's healthy on your body and takes a lot of problems out of the picture, including depression, all kinds of stuff. And that if you would start with that, a lot of the problems that you have with your body will dissipate. But people don't do it. They fluctuate things. And so the, your blood sugar, I mean, all these things change erratically when you just start throwing your body into a tizzy with different schedules. And so it wasn't it wasn't that there weren't times that we could change things up or because there were pressures, but as a rule, it was so healthy for the family and very good. Move on quickly. Real quick, state of the marriage. State of the marriage questionnaire. If you were to take a snapshot of marriage in America today, what would you see? You see television's view of marriage, Runaway romance, movies, tabloids, Hollywood. Which stars have said I do the most often? Ooh, wow. The more the merrier. You have academia's view. 
gay marriage. And so looking at the snapshot in the world today, you see an antagonism and mockery of traditional marriage. You have a rejection of the Judeo-Christian view of marriage, redefining of the meaning of marriage, serial polygamy. That is, divorces are polygamy, but serial rather than parallel. Instead of having multiple spouses, you're doing it one after the other. That's what we see in, in a lot of this. Glorification of romance, prenuptial agreements, living together unmarried, high divorce rate, single parents, and high incidence of STDs, sexually transmitted disease. It's no wonder that we're seeing fewer wedding bells ring. In 1946, the marriage rate per thousand people was 16.4, and now it's in 2010 it was down to 6.8. And it's been going down consistently. Consistently, In fact, now there's some alarm that we're starting to in America to become like Europe where we're going to go to a negative replacement rate of birth rates in this country. And we're right at that tipping point coming up. Divorce rate. So you see the marriage rate is in blue and how it spiked after World War II. A lot of people got married, but it's been consistently... Well, there's that one surge there in 1980 but it's been going down and it's now at the lowest point. And you can see divorce has been going up on us, even though it's had some spikes, it's on an upward trend. It's not 41% um, divorce rate as opposed to back in the 1800s, 2.5. It's crept up. Divorce in the United States, 4% of military people go through divorce each year. Every 13 seconds, someone somewhere files for a divorce. 43% of children are living without their father, father's involvement. 50% of children see their parents divorce. Eight years is the average length of a first marriage. 66% of divorcees are, are filed, of divorces are filed by women. Okay? So you can see some of these statistics. Why is the divorce rate so high in the United States? Individualism on the rise. Families aren't spending enough time together, which we kind of talked about mealtime. Romantic love often subsides. Once the honeymoon stage wears off, people often move on because they were basing their marriage on romance. Women are less dependent on men. Financially, women are more independent than ever before men. And so they, when they're upset by something, well, I'm not going to put up with this. I can get away from this. Many of today's marriages are stressful. Since in most families, both parents work, this increases stress in the family. It also added, it increases neglect of the children. Poor parenting. Divorce is more sociably acceptable. Since divorces are more common, society is more likely to accept it and accept you if you're divorced. And so there's no negative stigma on it to help you stay away from it. And legally, a divorce is easier than ever. Uh, no-fault divorce is just incredibly easy. Um, you're more likely to get divorced if you marry before 25, didn't graduate high school, fight over money, have a friend getting divorced. This was one we saw too. If you if there's a death in your of one of your children, the incidence is incredible for people. And we lost a child, and we know some of the stresses there, but the Lord brings you through. Uh, you're less likely to get divorced if you have a college degree, have happily married parents, are very religious, like uh, live in a blue state. 
They say that, that divorcees repeat the same mistakes as the first time. They tend to marry the same thing and then they tolerate it less. So you're right. First marriage, 41% divorce. Second marriage, 60%. Third marriage, 73%. You know, like they say, if you've got a problem with something, don't take it with you because that's what they're doing. They're the problem. They're taking it with them to the next relationship. So this is all understandable from a secular viewpoint, isn't it? But how about divorce being high because of a departure from God? Disobeying God. Having other gods. And running out and got, and running God out of the public square. This is the median age of first marriages. So we were talking about when's the optimum age to marriage. Look how it's gone from the 1950s and 60s around 20. For women and like 23, 22 for men. And now it's, it's steadily been on the rise. Delaying, delaying, delaying. Just real quick, a history of permanent requirement of tradition, requirement of traditional marriage. So permanence as a core requirement of traditional marriage within the United States is reflected in the earliest U.S. laws and societal beliefs. During colonial times, southern colonies generally did not have provisions for judicial divorce, which was in line with the, with the British, with the British, England's rejection of the practice. In New England, however, courts and legislatures occasionally granted divorce. And following the Revolutionary War, things started to loosen up. And while it was more difficult to obtain a divorce in some of the states, then in others, all the states that permitted divorce had strict rules regarding the circumstances under which divorce was obtained, and it generally surrounded adultery. That was the only thing permitted back in that, that day. Most states adopted more moderate laws identifying adultery and even other grounds for divorce, such as uh, and steadily increased. And you'll see them there in the paragraph before. Abandonment, neglect, intemperance, felony conviction, and extreme cruelty. Those are the ones beyond adultery. So they were starting to make concessions and starting to broaden it. In the latter half of the night of the 20th century, Americans became increasingly unhappy with fault-based divorce laws, and that's when no fault came in. As opposed to the earlier widely held view that permanence was a core requirement of marriage, the emerging view was that one of marriage as a partnership between two individuals which was terminable at will by those involved when the marriage failed to meet the needs of either party. And so in 1969, California became the first state to adopt the no-fault law, no-fault divorce law, and that just opened the floodgates to divorce. No-fault movement quickly gained traction between 1969 and 1985. Almost every state incorporated some form of no-fault divorce. So you see, when I was a young person, it was unheard of. Divorce was hard, unheard of. And the only place divorce took place was in Nevada where people ran off to get a divorce and it was shameful. And look where we are today. Look at that transition in my lifetime. It's just incredible. So the decreased role of religion in defining divorce and the growing recognition of divorce as a partnership. And there we have the, the consequence of it. It's an agreement for life now. So why did you get married? Reasons people got married, I found the one, I fell in love, I was lonely, to save money, to be part of his or her family, to escape my parents. Because we have money, we got married, to save on taxes, to get a grant 
to get her to grant a U.S. citizenship for someone because I got pregnant, to stop living in sin, to have a leg- legitimate sex. I had no choice. Must have been a shotgun. Yeah. So the birth rate has been going down as well. We saw that about divorce and remarriage. But birth rates have gone down steadily. So these are the declines. Currently, we're at 17.8. And as the yearly declines here, you can see. So already it's gone from 18.48 to 17.87. And these are the projections of birth rates. As you can see, they're declining. And this is the annual change. And this is the age of first-time mothers, 2016. Most of them grouped around the teens and 20s. By, but back in the 1980s, you see this spread. First-time mothers are older in big cities and on the coast and younger in rural areas in the Great Plains. San Francisco, they average 31 to 32 whereas in the rural areas, 20 to 21. So there are demographics that affect these things. How large a family should we have? Well, we've talked about that already. What should determine the size of a believer's family? <laughs> How long can you last? No, it it should be the Lord, shouldn't it? It should be, Lord, what would you have us to do? You know, and what, you know, what do we have faith to believe that you will enable, you know, provision for a large family? What are the advantages of having children in your youth? Well, you still have the energy, you still have the ability to keep up with them. I hear a lot of young people saying it's really hard because there's so, so few qualified candidates and no opportunities to meet them. So lastly, I just want to cover this quickly. So how are unmarried people supposed to meet other future, their future spouse? How does that take place? Christian dating site? Conferences? <laughs> Christian universities? Youth ministries? Youth for Christ, CEF, the What about that? Even though some believers have found their spouse this way, may I suggest that if you're not married, you follow these three steps. First off, prayer. Second, preparation. Third, preoccupation. Prayer. Prayer gets God involved. Prayer involves humility and submission to God's will. Prayer requires seeking God's face and turning away from sin. And we see this in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Do you guys want to write, do you want some of these things? Go a little bit slower? Okay, yeah. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. The thing to focus on there is if and then, the connection between the two. Prayer gets God, God involved if we do our part and seek his face, then he responds. Prayer involves humility and submission to God's will. God, what would you have for me? 
What's your timing? What kind of person? Seeking God and bringing other people into that picture of seeking God's face on it. Prayer requires seeking God's face and turning away from sin. If you're actively involved in pornography or sin, uh, don't start praying to ask God for a spouse. You need to get that problem fixed first. You're dishonoring God. You're dishonoring the respect for for the woman that God's going to give to you by looking at all these other women and lusting. Or romance novels for girls and women. Um, Genesis 24, 12-14 is Eliezer, Abraham's servant, going to find the wife for Isaac, going to find Rebekah. And just the way he prays to God and sets before God, God, if, show me the one. If they do this, so he's seeking God's guidance and laying things out there before. He's a good example of prayer. My parents prayed for us kids, for my brother and sister, and for godly spouses. We do the same thing for our kids and our grandkids. I prayed for specific qualities in my my wife. She had to know the Lord and she had to be passionate about the Lord. She had to love children and want a family. She had to be open to, to the Lord's leading to go overseas as a missionary. Just these prerequisites, we knew how God had, had wired me and my heart and we had to fit together. And so those things, and a lot of that, you get other people involved in praying with you about that. Modern social media pushes young people to focus on externals of their lives so that they can present an image of themselves to others. God, on the, on the other hand, wants us to focus on the internals of our lives so that we present the internal beauty to our prospective spouse. That that is the foremost thing you have to offer is the internal beauty of God's working in your life. And we need to remember that and focus on that. First Timothy 2.15, approved by God rather than people. Study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The priority that there's this God approval of the things you're doing in your life and how you've positioned your life before the Lord. <clears throat> not ashamed of anything. And that's what that verse says. Not ashamed. You have nothing to hide. There's no skeletons in your closet. Able to rightly understand and apply God's word. You're skilled in God's word because you're spending time in it. And then character development, preparation. Preparation is really character development where we, we work on spiritual character traits which conform us to the image of Christ. You pray and you prepare yourself for your future spouse by preparing to have those characteristics that God wants in your life, developing them as hard as it may be. That's what you're working on because God set all who are saved on a path of conformity to the image of Christ. And so we should be working on those character traits. Romans 8.29, for those who for he who know he else predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Preparation involves seeing the fruits of the Spirit present in our character and demeanor. Also means seeing evidence of the love characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13 in our lives. And we work on being gracious and humble, thoughtful and considerate, patient and persevering. So you, you're alarmed if you see anger as a trait in somebody. That should put up red flags. They don't have that trait of, of self-control. And so it's this that makes the person attractive. 
as they see the beauty, the internal beauty of your life. And this is the kind of person that Eliezer was looking for for Isaac, wasn't it? When he says, you know, someone who will let down the jar for me, who's considerate, who's thoughtful, who's not afraid of work, who is a servant, has a servant's heart. That's what he was looking for. And that's what he saw in Rebecca. That internal beauty was coming out in her actions and what she was doing. So she had a servant's heart. She was gracious, humble, thoughtful, considerate, patient, and persevering. Why should we want these qualities in someone else if we are not prepared to offer them the same qualities in ourselves? You're being hypocritical. You're being selfish. You want something good that you're not willing to offer to someone else as well. If you're looking for someone who loves a hobby or music rather than loves God first, things are going to end poorly. As you pray, as you prepare, get occupied with God and God's business. Be preoccupied with God's interest, God's heart for the lost, the needy, homeless, orphan, widow, children, the infirm, etc. In other words, be preoccupied about God's business. That becomes so attractive to other people. But if your passion is a hobby or your work and you're consumed with it, um, you're going to tend to neglect them. It's not attractive. But if you're preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, that's very attractive. And so I've seen young people find their spouses that way on the foreign mission field and missions or CEF and, you know, different ministries, whether it be, you know, food pantry or uh, offering food in different ways where their preoccupation is not finding a spouse, but the Lord, and then the Lord brings them a spouse when they're doing that work. The fourth one, which I didn't mention in that list, is called personal publicizing. And it's different than what you think. And it's not what you, it's not what you think, but it's sharing your desire with a personal mentor or elder. Say, pray with me. You know me. Would you pray for the right one or even look for the right one for me? This is not for everyone, okay? It's for those who believe that God would have them involve a godly person who can pray, look, and recommend. It involves trust in God's leading through a mature brother or sister who knows you well and knows what you need in a spouse. And I've seen this happen, and it's amazing. And some people are gifted in that way. We even have one of our elders who recognized this. And we had a, a, a young woman that came through, went to university, got her medical degree, was in fellowship with our, our assembly the whole time. She left, went on to do her her uh, residency. And then another young man shows up at our Wednesday night prayer meetings. He is just in town for, for four weeks doing training. And we saw, he saw it. That is a perfect fit. The way they love the Lord is so similar. And they were introduced each other to each other through this brother. And now they're married and have a child. It was so beautiful to see. And I've seen that kind of thing. But you have to be willing to listen to a godly person who knows you and has been observing you and those qualities and bring them in and say, do you see somebody? And, and we know from, and we have a lot of Indian families in our fellowship, and they arrange marriages work because of the commitment to Christ. And it has nothing to do with, with romance and all those other things. All right, we've got to close. And so... It really does come down to where you are spiritually and who and what God will use in your life to direct you to your life mate. As we close, I'd like to ask the following question. 
Is a romantic relationship top priority for you in finding a spouse? How does commitment in marriage differ between romantic attraction marriages and arranged marriages? And whose perspective do you have on marriage? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We just, we just desire so much that we be obedient and have, have godly marriages and that we raise up a godly heritage for you. Arrows that are sharp and able to do your work among the enemies of the cross. And so God, we just pray that you'd use us in our lives, encourage us, give us hope, lead us to the spouses you have for us, God, that we might continue to represent your name in this world as godly families, couples, in love with each other, in love with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.